Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield. What's going on, ladies and gents? Thank you for being here. Now, it's a real honor to introduce a very special guest on this episode of Chat with Traders. I would like you to meet Aaron Brown. Aaron is highly regarded as an authority on the subject of risk management. Although he originally started out as a poker player and sports better, then a trader and later a portfolio manager, for the past 30 years, Aaron's been a dedicated risk manager. And for the past 10 years, he was the risk manager at AQR. For those who don't know, AQR is a $200 billion quant hedge fund. Now, this episode with Aaron comes in two parts. I can promise you this wasn't planned. It was completely unintentional. But we reached somewhere close to about 60 minutes, and I still had so many things I wanted to ask him about, like I hadn't even got halfway through my notes. So thankfully, Aaron agreed to continue our discussion the following day, and that's the second part, which will be released one week after the release of this episode, so Wednesday the 8th of November. On this episode though, part one, we talk about Aaron's early days playing poker, unconscious influences on decision making, the goals and objectives of a risk manager, how Aaron managed the quant equity crisis of 2007, and much more too. Then on the next episode, part two, we spend more time specifically talking about I guess what you could call more practical suggestions for how you can better understand and manage risk for yourself. And one thing I should probably point out, if you do hear a few strange noises coming from the background, that's because there was a street fair going on outside Aaron's apartment. (laughs) Okay, let's get going on part one. Take plenty of notes if you need to. Here is my guest, Aaron Brown, for a lesson in risk taking. So, Aaron, you left AQR a few months back. Um, I think you were there for around about a decade. What are you focusing on nowadays? 
<laughs> well, my theory was I wanted to simplify my life. Um, I left AQR under very good terms. Um, I'm still on the board. I still do some work here and there for them, but I got I, I don't commute every day, and that was the thing that was taking up too much time. Um, so my f intention was to focus on a book uh, that I'm writing on Fisher Black, but I haven't, haven't made very much progress on that. Um, I've been teaching a couple of courses. I've been doing a lot of, uh, you know, writing columns and so on. I've been traveling around. Uh, I've been doing a lot of stuff that I enjoy that I didn't have enough time for when I was working full time. But I really have to get serious and uh, start uh, start start work on that book one of these days. <laughs> I'm sure you'll get around to it when the time's right. Yeah, the problem is I have about 12 boxes full of papers. And it's just daunting. If I had less, you know, I could like work on it. But once I open up that first box, it's like I'm down for two weeks and I just never quite find the energy to do right, that. Right, right. Now, I wanted to ask you about your relationship with risk, because if I understand correctly, it first began around about the age of 14 years old when you first began playing poker. I have to ask, like at 14 years old, what enticed you to begin playing poker? <laughs> well, I actually have to go back earlier, so I'm, I'm, I don't know exactly what age, but seven, eight, whatever, and I read the newspaper. You may not, you may be too young to remember what a newspaper <laughs> is, but they used to deliver them to the house. I used to deliver them at one point. <laughs> all right. <laughs> they, uh, I used to read them from the back because all the numbers were in the back, all the interesting stuff. I didn't care anything about the headlines and the you know, political stuff, but there were just lots and lots of numbers. And I loved them, and I tried to figure out patterns there, and I was very interested in horse racing and sports statistics, uh, financial statistics, whatever. And I came across a book called Beat the Dealer by Ed Thorpe that uh, talked about the first mathematical treatment uh, of risk I'd ever seen. So I was fascinated by all this stuff. And I also like to play poker. I mean, a lot of people, I was in the west, west of, uh, part of the United States where poker was very popular in those days. So we're talking about the 60s. Um, and, uh, I never really connected it with money making. It was, you know, some game you played for fun. And I thought about it the way I would think about another game like, you know, chess or backgammon or, or bridge or whatever. But I started getting very worried about money <laughs> when I was about 14. And it's hard to explain exactly why. Um, and, and not just worried, obsessed. It really seemed to me like this was a very difficult time for the economy. So we're talking about 1970 or so, you know, inflation's out of control and uh, people are losing jobs all over the place and the economy seems to be, you know, headed permanently uh, down. Everybody's very pessimistic about things. And it just looked to me like uh, I lived in a very sort of classic middle class suburb. As long as people kind of paid the rent and kept their grass cut, uh, everything was okay. You know, you could beat your wife, you could be a drug addict, you could have, you know, be a pedophile. None of that really mattered behind closed doors. All that mattered was, you know, keeping that job. And then if somebody lost their job, they kind of disappeared. They left the neighborhood and nobody ever talked about them. And it was really spooky. Um, and and I, I like to qualify this by saying that lots of people lived through the same exact same environment and, and felt none of this. It's like there are different radio frequencies around and different people pick up on different ones. But for me, it was just this like terrifying uh, thing. To this day, I still hate suburbs. But anyway, so I thought, you know, well, how am I going to be sure I can get money? And you know, I'm sure I can get a job. I'm not sure I'm, you know, good at any stuff. But I do know I'm very good at poker. And I do know people pay money to pay. Uh, you can make money playing poker. 
So at 14, I get my courage up. And I'm a very shy kid. I am very, you know, I am not a brave guy. Um, this took every ounce of courage I had to walk into the basement of a tavern. I'd sit down in a game with, you know, these sailors and, you know, guys in rough clothes and, you know, guys who look like they just came out of a knife fight or whatever and sit down and play and win their money and walk out. And when I did it, it was just euphoric. It was like, okay, <laughs> I've solved the big problem in my life. You know, I don't care whatever else happens. You know, I can be broke. I can be friendless. I can be alone in some city, you know, on the run, whatever. I can always find a poker game. I can always make money and at least I'll have a place to sleep. I'll have enough to eat and whatever. And that's all. still very important to me. But I mean, I'm no longer uh, seriously in, in danger of uh, being broke and friendless. But, you know, if it happened, that poker skill is very important to me in a way that no other amount of wealth can, uh, uh, you know, substitute for. You know, they can take away all your money. They can, you know, prevent you from working. They can do all sorts of stuff to you, but they can't take away your ability to play poker. Now, I take it that these games you were playing, they weren't above board like these were somewhat illegal games of poker that you were participating in? The law was very unclear. Um, typically, states would have laws against gambling, and they might have laws against, and, and, and the intent of the laws typically was to prevent someone from uh, making a living by offering games of chance from being a casino. Uh, there typically were not laws against actual gambling, but the problem would be if you had a game, a you know, completely open game, you're just playing, you know, on a, on a, on a, if you had a company, uh, the police would come in and say whoever was hosting at the tavern or the restaurant, whatever, uh, that they were profiting from the game and they would demand money. Uh, you moved the game down to the basement and really it didn't change anything except the police demanded less money. <laughs> um, doesn't really make a lot of sense, but nobody really thought of it as a crime. So people thought of it as a, uh, you know, something you had to pay the police for a little bit. In other places, people paid organized crime the same way. There just wasn't a lot of organized crime in Seattle. And in Chinatown, you could play for free. They didn't have to pay the police at all for whatever reasons of their own. But yeah, so these were, you, you know, certainly not advertised, certainly not uh, open, but, you know, everybody knew. I mean, I was 14 years old. I knew where they were. Um, and I was not, believe me, I was not the kind of kid who like, you know, street smart knows everything going on in the street. I would not have no idea where to buy drugs or guns or prostitutes or anything <laughs> like that. But I knew how to find a poker game. <laughs> and how accepting were they that uh, to let a 14 year old kid join in on their game? You know, that was the great thing. Nobody blinked an eye, said a word, whatever. You went in, you sat down, you had your money and you know how to play. And, and that was that. What happened when you were in school? Because at fourteen year old, at fourteen years of age, I presume you were still in school. You know, when teachers would ask you or it would come up, "What do you want to do when you leave school?" Would you say that you wanted to be a professional poker player? <laughs> no, I knew I knew back then that that would not have been a wise <laughs> answer. Uh, I typically told people I wanted to be a lawyer, although I knew it wasn't true, but it was something that you know. Everybody kind of people sort of had me pegged as a lawyer type, and uh, and uh, would leave me alone with that. Little did they know. <laughs> yeah, I, I always, from a very young age, and again, I, I don't, you know, I can't say I had a great upbringing. My parents were, you know, educated, great people, treated me nice. Nothing bad ever happened to me. We had enough money that nobody was ever hungry, but not enough that anybody could like get into trouble with it. Yet. I always kind of had this feeling that I was like hiding and undercover and I had to escape. Like I just had to, 
keep people from figuring me out until I could get out of town and uh, do what I wanted. I have no idea where that feeling comes from, but it was absolutely my attitude growing up. Don't tell them you have to. And what did you do when you actually left school? I presume you didn't go on to study law. I know you did go to university. What sort of things did you study? What path did you take after leaving school? Well, I, I had some really good luck. So, so I graduated high school. I went to Harvard in the United States. And the first thing I did is they, they showed me this list of courses I was supposed to take. And I thought, you know, this, this seems stupid. And, uh, and I had an advisor who was a you know, professor. You get a signed advisor. And I said to the advisor, you know, I, I don't want to take any of these courses. And he said, well, you know, come up with a list of courses and, and uh, you know, show them and I'll see if I can improve them. And I thought about it a little bit and I said, well, do I need to go to you? And he said, no, you know, any, you can get any professor to be your advisor and he signs off on your courses. That's that. And there was this guy named Harrison White, who was a mathematical sociologist who'd written some papers that I just thought were really spectacular, just really loved them. So I go to Harrison White and he'd never heard of, you know, advising or course requirements or anything like that. But I explained, look, what I want to do is take whatever courses I want and I need a signature. And he said, that seems pretty reasonable. I'll sign. And so I just took whatever I wanted. I took mostly graduate courses because Harvard graduate students are not as smart as Harvard undergraduates in general. And also... Um, they have to get, if they get a B minus, they lose their funding. So the dumbest graduate student in the class has to get a B. That means, you know, it just is no effort at all. You, you can just kind of show up and sleep through for a B plus, And if you do slice work at all, it's an A minus and it's a, or an A. Um, and the course are really interesting. You know, people were, who knew something were talking about something they liked. So I didn't take a whole lot of undergraduate courses. Uh, I took a lot of math and statistics. I took a lot of, uh, engineering courses. Um, I didn't take any economics, although, uh, you know, I later got interested in that. So what happened after that point? Like, when did trading begin to creep into the picture? Okay, well, this is a little later. So, okay, so I'm playing a lot of poker in college and I'm getting pretty well known in national poker circles and I'm making an okay living at it. But there's a big, okay, so we're talking down mid-1970s. The minute you say I'm a professional poker player, life gets a lot harder. <laughs> as long as you're a college kid who's studying to be a lawyer, you know, you can get into a lot of big money games and, and, and walk away with a lot of money. And everybody thinks, I guess, you know, they figure, well, you know, you're not a professional. You're not somebody who's taken them. They know you're a good player. Um, and they don't feel too bad about, you know, subsidizing some nice young guy's education. The minute you say, you know, you're a degenerate professional poker player, you get shut out of a lot of games and, and people treat you very differently. You know, they'll invite you in if you're a celebrity, uh, but not, you know, if you're just kind of a regular line pro. And I wasn't a celebrity in those days. I wasn't, I wasn't that uh, well known. So, you know, I come along, I'm, I'm a, you know, guy studying to be a lawyer, working as a consultant, but I'm really making my money playing poker and also doing a lot of sports betting in those days. And I figure out, and this is a lot of quantitative people who do this, I figure out that, you know, there's kind of a ceiling. It's pretty easy to earn what you might consider kind of upper middle class. You make a nice living, you know, especially if you don't have a family or, you know, any expensive taste, you know. All you want is like a place to sleep and some beer and, you know, some fun with your friends. Uh, you can easily support yourself with sports betting, with poker, with blackjack, whatever you want. But the minute you try to actually build up some money and go somewhere and do something, it, it's a whole it, it's a whole different level of effort. And finance, you figure out, well, look, it's the same kind of risk taking, the same kind of betting, um, but it's absolutely no problem to you know keep scaling up and get big more and more money. 
So once you learn you're good, once you learn you can win, uh, you want to take your efforts to a place where it gets, uh, you know, where it gets repaid. Uh, in finance, the big thing is you can compound. You know, you have a good year. That means you have more money for next year. You make more and more. And eventually you can have so much that you don't even have to trade anymore. It's very difficult to do that gambling. You said right there, you mentioned the word quant. <laughs> and had you always been very quantitative with the sports betting and uh, the poker you were playing? Like, were you always kind of a probability statistics, kind of very calculated um, and the risks you took, like is in some ways, is it almost like no wonder that you ended up pursuing the type of career you did, you know, as a risk manager at a quant fund, like had you always been very quantitative in how you played these games? Well, I, I tell you, Aaron, um, I, I, I was, I've always been very quantitative. I was not naturally, um, good at the other half of this. And, and that came from playing poker. So I'm a quantitative guy. I would have been perfectly happy. In fact, if I had discovered sports betting, serious sports betting, before I discovered poker, I probably never would have played poker and I never would have really learned the other half of risk. But in poker, so at first you can just play quantitatively, right? You know the numbers, you know the probabilities. And by the way, in, in, back in those days, there were no poker theory books. Not that any of these guys could read anyway, but uh, you know, at low levels you just collected money just by probability. But as you get higher and higher and you start getting some of the best players in the country, you realize there's a whole other level you got to get. And it's all done by your unconscious brain, right? There's nothing, you can't calculate it. You got to feel it. And you've got to train your unconscious brain uh, to play poker. <laughs> you know, it's really, it's a powerful uh, uh, computer up there. Uh, I like to say, you're, you know, your unconscious brain is more powerful than the most powerful computer. You know, computers have trouble telling dogs from cats with still pictures, uh, and they're right maybe 90% of the time. You know, your brain takes a constant visual field, you know, extracts all kinds of things from it, including what's a cat and what's a dog, and nobody taught it how to do it, but it doesn't know how to play poker. And your conscious brain is, you know, very weak. You know, can't multiply two three-digit numbers together, which any computer can do easily. So your conscious brain is sort of relegated tasks like humming advertising jingles and wondering which celebrity marriages are in trouble while your unconscious brain handles a heartbeat and respiration and whether to fight or have sex. So you got to enlist your unconscious brain if you want to be a top-level poker player. And that takes a lot of work and it has to be done young, I think. It takes, you need a lot of sleep deprivation. You just need a lot of things where you're sitting at a table, you're pushing every penny you have and a lot that you borrowed in the center of the table. And not just without a flicker of uh, emotion that somebody might be able to see, but also without blanking out, without letting fear and greed blank out the really small, quiet voices you need to hear to tell you what to do. And that's a real skill. That takes a lot of work. And you have to be pretty obsessed. And I was pretty obsessed. You have to be pretty obsessed to learn it. But once you learn it, you you understand the other half of risk. You understand, you already knew the math, um, but you understand the deeper part that you get that has to do with, you know, they, they, your conscious brain could never understand. So that's essentially the qualitative part. Is that a fair way to describe that? Yeah, qualitative. There are qualitative traders around who know no math or use no math in their trading but yet have a great sense for what's a good trade and a bad trade. 
Um, and, uh, and, and that's what they're using. They're using their unconscious brain to process information. Sometimes they'll tell you how they do it, but it's, you know, it's nonsense. They're, they're, you know, they're making stuff up. They're watching how they trade and then they're making stuff up. So it sounds like it makes sense. Mm, okay. <laughs> now the comment you made about sleep deprivation, was that just a bit of a, a joke or is that we being serious? No, no. Sleep deprivation is a very powerful, first of all, it's a euphoric. Second, it's uh, a very powerful, it stimulates a certain kind of learning that you really can't do uh, uh, when you're awake. Like when you're, you know, if you play in like 72 hours of poker with only a few power naps in there, uh, um, and it's not just a sleep deprivation, it's also kind of operating at high intensity. Um, you get in touch with your unconscious brain. At the end of that period, you know, you're, you're much more on speaking terms with your unconscious brain than you are when you wake up in the morning well rested after a, you know, relaxing day. Um, and you need to do that. You need to really get it. You really need to know yourself. And when I say know yourself, you gotta know what's really motivating you to do what you do. You know, we have this neurological research today. We didn't have it back then, but we have it now that says almost every decision you make, possibly every decision you make, you make before you're aware of having made it. You know, your conscious brain was not consulted. Um, and yet people think they have reasons for what they do. But the fact is they have to make up those reasons after the fact because they didn't, you know, their conscious brain didn't know what they were going to do. Um, and there's some fascinating experiences with that, uh, experiments with that, excuse me, that, uh, that demonstrate that. So most people who think they know themselves mean they sort of know how they think. Uh, they know how their conscious brain explains their actions after the fact, but they really have no idea why they do what they do. Uh, poker players have to do that, top poker players. You know, none of this makes any difference in your low-level uh, game with average players. But you want to play at the top level. you got to know why you do what you do. And by the way, for traders as well, you know, the traders, you have to know what, why you do what you do. Yeah, no, this is really interesting. I mean, that's why I wanted to pick up on that because I felt like you might have been getting at something where – sleep deprivation and operating at high intensities actually activates a, a part of your brain that maybe isn't always activated. So now it's really cool to hear about that, Aaron. Um, and how did you go as a trader? Like, you know, given that you'd been playing poker and doing sports betting for several years, you know, since you were 14 years of age or thereabouts, um, was that any help when you got into trading? Like, did you pick it up quicker than most? Well, I think you need a, well, I don't know if you need it. It's much easier to have a way in, right? So the hardest thing really is starting. Um, some people do it by getting a job, but uh, you know, I wasn't that kind of guy. Um, some people do it by sort of mentoring, you know, uh, apprenticing themselves to someone or whatever. Those, those are good ways that you can do them. Um, but what I did, I kind of approached it the way I approached, uh, you know, poker and blackjack and sports betting. And I looked around and I said, well, gee, people are just starting to trade these options. So this is like in 1973, uh, we start getting publicly traded options in the United States. So this is like, I guess, 78, 79 or so. I'm thinking, okay, people don't really know that. I don't want to compete with, you know, in stocks or in bonds with people who've been doing this for, you know, 40 years. Here's something that people haven't been doing very long and, and something where there's a clear mathematical edge. You know, there's a lot of mathematics here that it's not just, um, you know, sort of trading sense. And so I go into that and the big advantage I had in those days was there were only two computers on the uh, uh, floor and they had calculated, they didn't have calculators that do option math. So if you could do the option math in your head, uh, you had this enormous advantage. You could just go through and you could find all kinds of easy money. So I do that for a while and I'm making money, but I'm 
figured out pretty soon this is a lot like this floor trading of options it's a lot like the gambling you know it's easy to make a certain amount of money but you really can't scale it you know you're you're picking up crumbs and there's other people trying to pick them up and you could get you know you can get enough to live on and you're not losing money ever but it's just not going anywhere so then I actually sort of take the plunge and I go, I enter the PhD program at the University of Chicago. I figure, okay, I'm going to learn about this stuff. And the other thing people find hard to believe is, so, so I get out of school, I've had no experience that I told anybody about. I didn't tell people about my option trading. I certainly didn't tell them about my poker or blackjack or sports betting. I got a job at a college manufacturer, I mean, sorry, out of graduate school, uh, managing a $1 billion bond portfolio. You know, I never... I never bought or sold a bond in my life. Uh, there's no reason on my resume to suspect I'd ever traded anything. Yet, you know, just things were easier in those days. So I trade that for a while. I get into mortgages, trade those for a while. And, uh, and so I'm running some uh, mortgage strategies. So this gets me up to about 1987. We get the crash of 1987, October 1987, uh, October 19th, 1987. And there's this enormous realignment in the financial world and nobody notices. It's not just the stocks going down 25% in a day. It's like everything gets reorganized and starts trading differently, all kinds of different behavior. And that stunned me. And at that time I was kind of in contact with a group of 25, 30 uh, quants in New York. There weren't very many of us in those days. Um, and we're talking to each other and we all come to the same general idea that Okay, it's pretty easy making money. It's hard keeping money. Um, and and if we want to kind of get to the next level where we can you know build the businesses and, and uh, you know have secure income streams and, and not get blindsided by the market every four or five years, we need to really understand risk. So all of these quants who have been making money but but got you know because uh, one of the things about the crash of '87 is. The market moved in a way to hurt virtually every quant strategy. About the only quant I know who made money in those days was Nassim Taleb, who, uh, yeah, um, and he was he was using very different kind of mathematics than everybody else. So we study Nassim's mathematics, we study some other ideas, and really in the next three to five years we invent the modern field of financial risk management. And it's completely different from any sort of risk management people did before. And in fact, we even we argued about the name. And we decided to call it risk management because it wasn't risk minimization. We weren't interested in, you know, avoiding bad things. We were interested in taking maximum advantage of the risk there was in the market. And at, at that time, the only people who used the term risk management were people in insurance. And they used it to mean um, people who helped you decide whether you should insure a risk or whether you should keep the risk yourself, um, which is sort of what we thought we were doing. Um, unfortunately, afterwards, everybody kind of adopted the term risk management to mean, and they brought it back to mean, you know, risk minimization, avoiding danger, stopping bad things from happening, uh, which is not at all what we were trying to do. Can I just go back to the start of your answer there? So we're going back a few minutes. When you were first trading those options, you said it was very difficult to scale. And I'd just love to drill down into maybe the reasons why that was difficult to scale. I think that might be interesting to some people. Okay. Um, well, uh, example I give people is we had a uh, um, we had a twenty foot rule, um, and you, I don't know if you uh, know anything about high frequency traders, but you know high frequency traders want to co locate because they're worried about the speed of light. They need to get their cable shorter than the other guy's cable. Well, we were worried about the speed of sound, 
So you have really had to be within 20 feet uh, of the pit where you wanted to trade. Otherwise, by the time the sound reached you and you reacted, it was too late. Somebody else had grabbed the uh, had grabbed the trade. Well, only so many people can fit into a 20 foot radius uh, around the, around the specialist, and you can only do one of you know you can only go to one place post at a time, and the post might have you know six or eight stocks at the post. So you're really limited in the opportunities you could get. You know, you, so you wedge yourself in some place. Uh, you could try a popular stock that was really active with lots of money, but then you got lots of people elbowing you and trying to grab your uh, um, uh, trade. Um, or you could go to something that's a little quieter where it's easier to get in, but then there's you know fewer crumbs to grab. But it's all you got to be there in physically in person, and these trade sizes were not sizes were not huge. It wasn't like somebody came in and said, "I'll do a hundred contracts and you could grab it," or or that you could afford to do that even if someone did. So you're doing one, two, three contracts at a time, and you got to stay near the post where your old positions are because you got to keep an eye on those. Um, so if something exciting is happening across the room, it's a real risk to go across there and, and you know let your other positions. Uh, um, uh, you know, uh, just leave them alone. So, you know, you, you could get bigger. I mean, there were people who did bigger trade sizes. There were people that had people working for them and so on. But it was like building a business. It wasn't like, you know, just doubling your bets. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, of course. I mean, you didn't say it was impossible. You just said it was it was difficult. Well, you know, it was different. You weren't trading. I mean, you, if you wanted to get really big, you had to run a business. And that, by the way, was true of sports betting as well. You know, you couldn't get rich just betting games. You could get rich opening a bookie operation, which is what a lot of people did. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. So at what point, uh, just continuing from where we left off, at what point did you actually transition from becoming a trader as such to now becoming a risk manager? Okay, well, I guess I, I moved from trader to portfolio manager, then I actually moved to head of mortgage security. So now I'm I'm not really trading. I've got traders working for me. I'm running a department. Um, and uh, then 87 happens. Uh, so 87, I say, okay, I, I'm going to go back to school. So I, I went to teach. I took a finance uh, professorship and I'm studying things. I'm still kind of trading on my own on the side, but it's not, not full time and not not for uh, not, not, not in a large size. And I'm trying to figure out this risk stuff. And then I uh, go take a job with JP Morgan. Uh, we're working with a group. We eventually came up with risk metrics. Um, and uh, you know, then I, from that point on, my career was all in risk management. So instead of trading, I worked on trading desks. I worked for big you know, global banks or eventually a quantitative hedge fund helping other people manage risk, you know, or managing the risk of the organization. Right. Now, this 
position or this role, whatever you want to call it, as a risk manager, I think there's probably some people, especially maybe uh, traders who are newer to this, might not really understand what that role entails. So can you just break it down for us and explain what does a risk manager do on a day-to-day basis? Like if we look at a typical day, what goes on? Yeah, well, it's easier to let's let's start back. So when we're first doing it in the you know early '90s, when we just invented it, we were all front office risk managers. That means we're sitting on the desk. So we got you know 20, 30 traders on a desk. We got a couple of desk heads. We got uh, you know business unit head. You know had a fixed income or head of equities, whatever. And we're kind of sitting there, and then there's probably only one of us in those days. Um, we are watching, keeping an eye on the traders. We're uh, talking about their trades with them. We're setting up a structure of limits, you know, who's allowed to do what. Uh, we're approving or, or not approving trades. Uh, we're spending a lot of time, you know, talking with the desk head about the overall risk of the desk and the business unit head, the overall risk, not what individual traders are doing, but how it kind of aggregates up to an overall risk. We're doing a lot of coaching. We're coaching the younger traders the uh, or the ones who are going through difficulties. Um, occasionally we are, uh, you know, uh, uh, pushing people out, although we would never, you know, wouldn't be the risk manager who made that decision. You just go to the desk head and say, you know, this guy is, you know, I, th- I think this guy is uh, uh, more risk than he's worth um, at the moment. Um, and you're watching the market. You're trying to come up with, you know, scenarios that might be less, lower probability than, than other people are considering in their trading, but are still important. Um, and, you know, your overall uh, trying to get the desk profits, not, not to make the desk more profitable, but to allow those profits to grow into a larger total uh, um, at the end of the year. So, you know, you're helping people decide, you know, when they should be swinging for the fences. Sorry, that's an American term, but uh, I don't know if it uh, translates. It does. Yeah. You know, okay. <laughs> and when they should be, you know, going for the single, going for the bunt, trying, you know, just trying not to do something bad. Um, you know, in which markets should you be, uh, you know, putting more resources? Um, where should you be getting more people in? Um, all those sorts of decisions. But I guess the one that people think of most canonically as the risk manager is setting limits. So you're telling everybody, here's how much you can bet, you know, and on, on these sorts of bets. And you're, uh, and if anybody wants to go over the limit, then you got to look at the trade. Yeah, that's a front office risk manager. And we still have those. Okay, they're still around. Although today they're doing a lot more paperwork because there's now a middle office risk management. So middle office risk management, which, by the way, is what I did for most of my career. So the middle office risk management, you're not talking, you're not sitting on the trading desk anymore. Now you're talking to the executive committee, you're talking to the CEO, the CFO, you know, the top people of the firm, and you're in touch with all the desk risk managers. So you're kind of aggregating from all the front desk risk managers. You're then explaining the integrated risk to the executive committee, and you're talking to them about what, you know, what they like, what they don't like about it, and you come up with a decision of how you want to change it, and then you have to communicate that to the front office risk managers about so they can do it. And it's a it's a very technical process. It would be very difficult to, you know, the CEO can't go directly talk to a trader. They don't just don't talk the same language. The CEO could not explain his concerns in a way where the trader would know how to change his trading. Um, so you need kind of two layers of communication translation to do that. So the CEO talks to the middle office risk manager, the middle office risk manager talks to the front office risk manager, and the front office risk manager talks to the trader. 
Then, uh, starting in the late 90s, we started getting back office risk management. So suddenly regulators want to see risk management, uh, investors want to see it. And the vast majority of people who work in risk management are working in back office risk management. They are compiling reports. They are, you know, uh, checking formal limits that are set across the firm. Very different from the front office risk. So the front office risk manager says, okay, you can, uh, you know, Aaron, you can trade, uh, you know, up to $100 million on this, uh, this uh, type of security. Um, and then if you want to trade $200 million, you come talk to him and say, you know, can I do more? And if you're only doing 20 million, he comes to you and says, look, if you're not going to use your limit, I'm giving it to someone else because, you know, your, your seat is expensive. We're not paying you to sit here and not take risk. Uh, firm-wide ones, you know, set by regulation or set by, you know, uh, investment management agreement uh, with the customers and things like that. Those are more like legal speed limits. It's like, okay, here is the limit. And don't even think about asking to go over it. And we don't mind if you come under it. We don't insist that you use it up. It's just here's kind of the, the rule, the law, uh, and it applies firm wide. So so it's not clear, you know, who has the right to uh, uh, use it. You got to have a whole group of people kind of arguing about who gets to use which part of it. Um, and and to my the way I would say it, I don't think that has anything to do with risk management. I would call that you know budgeting. I would call that you know corporate control, human resource management, whatever you want to call it. You know, it's not done with any kind of sense of trading. No trader ever designed it. Uh, it doesn't make sense to any trader. It's just kind of a rule you have to deal with. Okay. Now, I just want to ask you this question. This might be a bit of a, a silly question. You might laugh at it. But, um, you know, being a risk manager, this is something I, th- I think you've had that role for around about, is it 30 years? Anyway, it's a, it's a long while, okay? Yep. Yep. Has this changed the way you do like normal day-to-day things like crossing the road, uh, getting in your car and driving somewhere? Like, do you just unintentionally think about things much differently than I guess the regular person does? <laughs> well, I think I was kind of inclined to think this way anyway. So it probably affected me less uh, than other people, but uh, maybe this will uh, be a good example. I just, uh, this weekend on Saturday, I was a judge at a University of Chicago, the Booth Business School, uh, has this competition among the students, and it's like a uh, a role-playing scenario where the students are given these business situations they have to react. And I'm sitting here thinking that, boy, and, and, and they gave me a marketing. <laughs> I was I was doing this marketing scenario. I know nothing about marketing. But I'm sitting here, and, and, and they have all these MBA students come on. And these guys are, you know, these are people who are 27, 28, you know, worked five or six years. came from top diplomas five or six years working for like a top consulting firm or a big business in a senior role. And now they're back at the top, one of the top business schools in the world. And they're all very smooth, you know, like bad news comes in, and they're kind of very smooth. And, and, and I'm thinking, boy... You know, I've been doing this with traders my whole life, and you know, they'd be, they'd come in, they pound the table, something would break before this uh, thing was done. These people don't care at all. You know, I, 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 my inclination as a risk manager is to go and shake them up and say, you know, come back when you got something you're passionate about. I don't want to see uh, these big decisions made by careful consideration of people doing dignified things that they can justify afterwards. Uh, I just don't believe you make good decisions that way. Um, and maybe you do in marketing. I don't know. I mean, I got no idea how, how, how that's supposed to be done, but I'm having a uh, real trouble, uh, judging these people because to me it's just completely foreign how they're, how they're making decisions. Right. Right. Uh, something else I wanted to ask you about, you were at AQR, I think 
when the quant equity crash occurred in August 2007. Do you have any interesting stories or lessons which you learned from that event? You know, my my biggest memory of it, so actually I just started, so I started in May and this quant equity crisis happens in August. Um, and it's my first real test as a, you know, it's the first, you know, big thing I, you know, for, I, I had to do. You first come there, you just kind of get started, you do this and that. There aren't any really big risk decisions that come up. We'd actually, fortunately, uh, I cut the risk 5% uh, back in late July for reasons that probably had nothing to do with the crisis that was actually coming. But, you know, that, that little bit of extra cut really makes a big difference um, um, for a number of reasons. But anyway, there wasn't really much we could do. In other words, the risk was pretty much determined by what we had to do for our counterparties. Um, we knew our positions were good. We knew this was a temporary thing that would, you know, come back. This wasn't a, uh, a, a permanent, uh, state of affairs, but we were very highly levered and we had to cut positions to keep our counterparties and our uh, lenders and so forth, uh, um, you know, continuing to let us trade, you know, we didn't want them to blow us up and, and, and you know, pull off our, all of our credit lines and so forth. So basically we were doing what we had to do. Um, and then uh, in the Thursday, so this crisis really starts on Tuesday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, we're losing. Basically, in a day, we're losing what we think is our worst case, you know, or normally we would think of as a worst case loss for a year. And then Cliff Asnes, the founding partner, says, okay, this is over. And I don't know to this day how much he got the call right that it was over because, you know, he knew it was over or it was over because he said it was over and other people saw that and other people started getting back in and whatever. But one way or another, that turned out to be the right call. And if we'd been able to maintain our positions, if we hadn't had to cut, we would have made back on Friday everything we lost on the previous three days. But, you know, you couldn't do that. It was, you know, you'd have to have an infinite amount of money to do that. Uh, so we, we actually took us the end of the month. Uh, to make it back because we were at smaller size. Um, my main memory from that time, so, so I really wasn't doing very much. Um, um, you, you know, you need to have options to get much use out of a risk manager. Um, but my main memory of that time was watching CNBC and everybody knew something was going on. But nobody knew what it was. None of the reporters knew what it was. So they're all chattering away. Oh, there's something really exciting happening. But stock prices weren't moving. You know, stock volume was a little higher than normal, but nothing extraordinary. You know, nobody was going broke, but everybody just knew something was going on. And it, you know, really hit me how little you can understand the market. You can be a reporter. You can have access to all the people. You can see every trade. You got no idea what's going on with the market unless you're actually trading it. And what actually caused the quant equity crash? Like a lot of people, I presume, who are probably hearing us talk about this right now, don't actually know much about this crash at all because, you know, it was just around the corner where the, the GFC kicked off. Just to explain to us in short, what was the quant equity crash all about? Yeah, okay. No, you're absolutely right. Actually, a friend of mine, Scott Patterson, a reporter for the Wall Street Journal, uh, wrote a book on the quant equity crisis. He called it The Quants. Um, and his great misfortune was he had this great book, but by the time it came out, everybody had forgotten the quant equity crash because we'd had the much bigger crash that uh, that uh, happened in uh, a year later. Um, so here it is. So we have these quant equity funds, and what we mean by that is these are funds. They typically trade ten thousands, or you know, as many as five or ten thousand stocks. 
they trade everything by computer. They're very market neutral. So for you know, every, there's short for every long, and it's very carefully balanced by industry, by country, um, um, and, and so forth, by interest rate sensitivity. So it really should respond not at all to any sort of uh, general level of stocks or interest rates or, or you know, currency or anything like that. And we just make small amounts of money on each trade. And they just kind of, and, and, and the way these strategies work when they work, which they're supposed to, is they sort of just fairly low risk, but very, very high leverage. And they just uh, uh, make small amounts of money all the time. And they're incredibly well diversified because, you know, you got, uh, let's say you got 3,000 long positions and 3,000 short positions and cl very closely matched. So you're not taking any bets at all. So that's not supposed to be able to go against you in any big way. You know, yeah, you can have a bad day and be down 10 or 15 basis points, but uh, it's not supposed to go against you, you know, 5% or 10%. And the only way it can really go against you is if, you know, every single one of your longs goes down and every single one of your shorts go up. And because they're so tremendously diversified and, and closely matched, uh, that shouldn't happen. But it did. <laughs> um, why did it happen? Well, it's a... Uh, um, we now know that, uh, or at least, at least this is, I guess, this is the story. We don't really know all the details, but um, there was a quant firm that had some losses, not in their quant strat, not in their quant equity strategies and other strategies. Uh, but quant equity is the most liquid thing they had. It's you know you free up tremendous amounts of cash by cutting the leverage in your quant equity. Uh, so they start cutting positions, and this is in around mid to early July. And that's causing some strange behavior, and that's of course, that's why we had our 5% cut in July. And it's just some strange behavior. Too many longs are going down, too many shirts are going up for you know the things that should are just very improbable statistically. Anyway, the more this happens, the more there are losses. And and one thing about quants is quants quants cut their positions when they have losses. Uh, not they don't think of it as cutting risk. If you have you know. Uh, um, Let's say you got you know a billion dollars of AUM and you're running a portfolio that's three billion long and three billion short. Well, if you have a five percent loss, uh, you just automatically cut your long and your short positions five percent, and you think of it as maintaining the same position because it's the same position relative to your your capital. Um, also, a lot of these funds had things that targeted volatility, so when volatility went up, they were cutting positions. Now, it wasn't that all these. Uh, uh, um, funds were holding exactly the same position. Here's the thing I think people don't understand about quant. See, quant really makes money. Uh, most of the things you hear about are just nonsense or kind of random stocks. So it doesn't really matter what one, you know, one active manager does relative to another active manager. If one guy likes Apple, another guy doesn't like Apple. Um, and so if one of them starts selling it, you know, doesn't necessarily hurt all of them. But if you think about it, every day, you know, there's stocks that are going to go up and stocks that are going to go down. And if your trading actually makes money, you know, you have to have you have to own more of the long ones and you have to be short more of the uh, down ones. And you may have a completely different approach to me. You may have a very different portfolio to, from me. But if we're both quant equity investors, we've got to have some overlap in our portfolios. And, you know, HR, we tracked overlap very carefully. Um, you know, you and I might only have five percent or 10 percent overlap. But if you get 100 people, you know, 100 big quant funds, the stocks that they're all long and their stocks that they're all short, those are, you know, common to uh, a lot. And those are all moving uh, wrong. And so this is causing these uh, moves that just shouldn't shouldn't happen statistically. And there really is no way around. It really isn't quant. If you're making money in the markets, 
then you're almost, you just, at least in a big diversified way, you could, okay, maybe you just found one great trade that nobody else knows about. But if you're buying and selling thousands and thousands of stocks and you're actually making money, you have to lose money when money starts pulling away from these sorts of strategies, when, you know, money starts moving from the smart people to the dumb people. Um, there's just no way around it. You cannot avoid it, uh, whether you're a quant or anything else. Um, I don't think this applies to most individual traders. I think you have to have very, very highly diversified portfolios for this to be a factor. But if you're running these kinds of strategies where you trade almost everything on the market, you just have to resign yourself to once in a while, uh, money is going to pull away from the strategy and you're going to have losses that, you know, should be, uh, you know, should happen once in a hundred million years or something. And actually there's a bigger danger that people don't think about, but it's actually worse. When you're backtesting these strategies or even when you're running these strategies, if you're uh, testing them or running them over a period where people are getting into the strategy, you're going to think they're much less risky and much more profitable than they really are. And you're going to lever them up too much. And then when uh, you get the bad news that people are pulling out of it, uh, you're going to get hit double. How are you able to measure the overlap like, is it because these uh, different funds are buying such large positions that they need to re be reported somewhere? Like, how are you able to know if the if your holdings overlap with the holdings of another really large fund? Yeah, um, the reporting isn't that useful. Um, it's true because these funds are so highly levered. Uh, they often do have to report. You know, AQR is often one of the biggest, or you know, two or three shareholders. Um, of a company, but that's not really very useful because they don't have to report their shorts. So when you look at AQR, you look at all the stocks we're long. We may be, you know, long a million shares and short five million shares. You don't really know that, you know, in different funds. Um, and also the lag, the reporting lag is such that by the time you see those reports, uh, the funds might be holding uh, very different things. No, you get this from the street, from brokers. Um, you know what stocks are hard to borrow, so you know what you know people are trying to short. You do see what short interest is. Um, you also kind of get a feel for what uh, what some of these other big firms are doing, you know, and you see it in the trading volume to some extent. So you're guessing. I don't, you know, you don't have the uh, uh, information exactly. Uh, but you can get a, a feel for overlap. You also, um, this is also something that only applies to quant funds, probably not to most uh, your investors. When you run a quant fund, you're not thinking of it as a single fund. You're thinking of it as hundreds or thousands of factors. And each one of those factors goes into constructing your portfolio. Uh, you have factors that are making money and factors that aren't. Um, in the quant equity crisis, the factors that we knew a lot of people were using, those were the ones that got hit very badly. We had some factors that were proprietary to AQR that were not well known, and those did not get hit, or they got hit much less. So we can kind of tell from things like this how much uh, of our portfolios overlap, uh, what other people are using the same factors. Right. Okay. That's interesting. And did this event, did this trigger any large changes, maybe not only at AQR, but just kind of industry-wide to how a lot of these quant funds were uh, running their strategies? Or was this crash not, you know, it recovered on the fourth day, essentially, um, or you said that you uh, were able to recover most of your losses by the end of the month. Was this crash maybe not a big enough deal to really trigger many changes? No, it is. I mean, you got, you know, quants are engineers. Quants are, 
uh, logical. They're not reacting to, it's not like a business where people are reacting to the losses. You now Quants are learned a lesson. Okay, they said, okay, there is more tail risk in these strategies than we thought. Uh, we have to run them at lower leverage. We have to spend more effort trying to find idiosyncratic factors that other people aren't using. Uh, we have to put more effort into understanding what other people are doing. Um, and, and, you know, it wasn't like, I mean, none of these were lessons nobody knew. It wasn't, you know, the people learned something they never thought of before. It just gave much greater weight to things people were, had, had, had been doing anyway. Um, and I think the biggest single change, or the one obvious single change is, um, I've been trying to get a formal drawdown control policy in an AQR, and, uh, and, and, and quants tend not to like that. Quants tend to think that, you know, if I have a bet, it's, you know, just as good a bet the day after it lost money as the day before it lost money. You know, it's not, no reason to change your bet size um, um, in response to losses other than just cutting it proportionate to your, so it's now proportionate to your capital. And I, I just didn't believe that as a risk manager. And and after the quant equity crisis, we got all the um, buy-in uh, uh, to do that. And, and the biggest advantage of it turned out to be not that it improved performance. It's not meant to per improve performance. It's meant at the end of 10 years, you're in the same place you would be without this drawdown policy, but your low points are better. You, you don't go quite as deep down on, on the bad times. Um, what happens is, you know, you get a call, risk manager, you get a call from uh, counterparties, and uh, they say, gee, your fund is, you know, down 6% for the month. And typically with ISDA agreements you have with your counterparties, if you're down 10% a month, either through losses or, or redemptions from investors, they have a right to terminate all their contracts, which is very bad. Um, you're down 6% for the month, we're only halfway through the month, uh, what are you doing? What are you planning to do? And there are two bad answers. Uh, one bad answer is, you know, ah, nothing, our trades are just as good as they were, we're doubling up in size, you know, then they catch you off right away. Or you could say, oh, we're panicked, we're, we are, things aren't working, we're reversing all our trades, you know, that, that's pretty bad too. You know, the best answer is, well, gee, we got this drawdown control policy in place, we thought about this in advance, nothing's wrong, we're down, we've already cut risk 20%, if we lose another 2%, we're cutting another 20%, everything's going exactly as planned, you know, go call up somebody else. And it works, they love it, you know, they got off the phone and, uh, and, and, and nobody cut us off. So, uh, so that was the big advantage there. So why did you want to implement that policy? I think this is quite interesting. So you said that most uh, quant traders weren't really a fan of this idea, but you were, obviously. Um, was it mostly because you wanted to stop investors from pulling their money out if you did reach that 10% drawdown for the month? You know, they had that option to do so. Um, or was it more of a... Uh, maybe a risk management decision. No, it, it wasn't for investors. We had pretty good uh, lockup and redemption terms. And, and, and frankly, the investors who are going to pull out, you don't want to do a lot of effort to stop them because you want them out of the fund. Um, you know, if you, if you do some extra stretching to keep an investor in, they're just going to redeem at an even worse time. So there's no, there's no advantage from that one. No, it's a risk management decision. It, it comes with, you know, talking to traders. I, I actually had a long background in, in qualitative trading before I, um, I mean, I personally was a quantitative trader, but as a risk manager, I was mostly risk managing qualitative traders. And, and I have this discussion, you know, they put on a position and it went against them. 
and uh, and I'd say, okay, I, I, you know, I, I don't want to stop you out of, you know, we, we, we're not at our stop. We haven't, we're not stopping another physician. But, you know, you were wrong. You were wrong about how low something could go before it went back up, assuming you were wrong in this position. You know, you, you, you know, it was at 100. You thought it was going to go to 120. And, and you're probably still right. But now it's at 90. You didn't think it was going to go to 90 before it went to 120. Um, so you're wrong. So let's get out at 90. And we're not getting out forever, right? Um, um, as soon as it goes, let's say, two points up from its low, we're going to get back in. So if it goes right up tomorrow, we're giving up two points. If it goes down to 80 and goes up two points, well, we're getting back in at 82 and got out at 90. We're made eight points. And if you look at this thing long term, you say, boy, those really pretty much average out. You pretty much, uh, you know, it, it's a it's an even money bet and you're going to make as much as you lose. But what's going to happen is when things go your way, when the thing turns around right away, that's when you're going to lose money. And when things go a lot deeper down, that's when you're going to save money. So to me, it's a free lunch. It's, it, you know, you're not making any money net. You're making the same amount of money after 10 years of trading. But every time you're at a low point, you're not quite as low. Um, and, and you're giving that money back. Uh, but you're giving it back in good times, which, you know, you, 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 you can afford. And people underestimate the difference of you know, small little, even like that 5% cut I was talking about, we did in late July. You know, you make a small cut early, that can be the difference. So, you know, you're, you're, you can wait a little longer in the trade. Uh, you never want to be in a trade where the risk is managing you. And risk managers think ahead. They don't think, you know, am I forced to cut risk today? They're saying, gee, if things continue to get bad, will I be forced to cut risk? And I never want to have my position so big that I'm forced to cut risk. Because then you can't control the price. Um, it's also psychologically very bad. Um, you know, it's just death. The point of risk management is to keep yourself in a position where you always have flexibility. You know, it's always a choice uh, whether you want to cut risk again. Okay, folks. So this is around about the point where I realized we were close to 60 minutes into the conversation and I wasn't even halfway through my notes. <laughs> like there were still so many topics, so many different things I wanted to ask Aaron about still. So I put it forward to him. Would he be open to continuing this conversation on the following day? Kindly, he agreed to do so. So that will be the second part and that will be available on the next episode. Okay, so next week's episode, which will be available from the 8th of November. And the link to that episode will be chatwithtraders.com slash 150. In the meantime, I should also point out Aaron has a personal website. It's eraider.com. So that's spelled E-R-A-I-D-E-R.com. You can check that out. Uh, he's just got Lots of general info, different articles he's written, links to his books, just more info about him, etc. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you to our sponsors, TradeStation and LinkedIn. I'll catch you guys on the next episode. If there's anything in the meantime, please hit me up on Twitter at Chat with Traders. And that's a wrap. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders. But rest assured, there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes. And we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders. Chat with Traders.